There. Welcome to our Soul Food Broadcast, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. The Bible is the first Samuel chapter 16. If you can, please stand when you get that. If you're new to Calvary Chapel, we go verse by verse through the Bible from Genesis to Revelations. We are now in the book of 1 Samuel chapter 16. And uh, go down to verse 22. The Bible says, Then Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Please let David stand before me, for he has found favor in my sight. And so it was, whenever the Spirit from God was upon Saul, that David would take a harp and play it with his hand. And Saul would become refreshed and well, and the distressing spirit would depart from him. Now the Philistines gathered their armies together to battle, and were at Sokah, which belongs to Judah. They encamped between Sokah and Azekah at Ephes-Demim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered together, and they encamped in the valley of Elah, and drew up in battle array against the Philistines. The Philistines stood on a mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on a mountain on the other side, with a valley between them. And a champion went out from the camp of the Philistines named Goliath from Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a bronze helmet on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. He had bronze armor on his legs and a bronze javelin between his shoulders. Now the staff of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and the iron spear had weighed 600 shekels. And a shield bearer went before him. Then he stood and cried out to the armies of Israel and said to them, why have, you come out, why have you come out to line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and you the servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and I kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the armies of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were greatly dismayed. Now David was a son of the Ephrathite of Bethlehem, Judah, whose name was Jesse, and had eight sons. And the man was old, advanced in years in the days of Saul. The three oldest sons of Jesse had gone to follow Saul into the battle. The names of the three sons who went to the battle were Eli, the firstborn, to him, then Abinadab, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest, and the three oldest followed Saul. But David occasionally went and returned from Saul to feed his brothers or his father's sheep at Bethlehem. And the Philistine drew near and presented himself for forty days, morning and evening. And Jesse said to his son David, Take now for your brothers and ephah this dried grain, these ten loaves, and run to your brothers at the camp. Father, we thank you for your word. It's just been such a sweet time of worship and fellowship today. And I think kind of days like this are just a a foretaste of what heaven is going to be like as we can just gather together in love and in the fellowship of your spirit and just enjoy one another's company. And I pray that that would be what would happen today. Take your word, Lord, and do to each individual heart what your word needs to do today. ask in Christ's name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. If you've ever read through the book of Psalms, as well as in other places, you'll have discovered that the Bible places great emphasis on the importance of music as a God-given gift. 
However, in studying for this, I discovered that musicians often get a bad rap and are the source of many jokes. If I were a better man, I would have ignored them. But instead, here they are. Why do you call a drummer in a three-piece suit? The defendant. Why do you call a guitar player without a girlfriend? Homeless. How do you get a drummer off your doorstep? You pay him for the pizza. And speaking of pizza, what's the difference between a semi-professional guitar player and a large pizza? Well, a large pizza can feed a family of four. What did the drummer get on his IQ test? Saliva. So glad James isn't in here. Why do you call a musician with a college degree? The night manager at McDonald's. What's the difference between a banjo and an onion? Nobody cries when you chop up a banjo. And finally, how many musicians does it take to pave a driveway? 23 if you line them up just right. That seems a little harsh, doesn't it? Although I heard one pastor say that Satan was the first worship leader and it's went downhill from there. Now, I don't believe that, Lisa Hawthorne. We're going to discover this morning that despite what I read, praise and worship music is a powerful force in our life when fighting the enemies that will come against us. Now, we left King Saul last week being tormented by a distressing spirit, and so his servants go and bring David to come and play for him. Look at verse 22 with me. And Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Please let David stand before me, for he has found favor in my sight. And so it was, whenever the Spirit from God was upon Saul, that Saul would take the harp and play it with his hand. Then Saul would become refreshed and well, and the distressing spirit would depart from him. We wonder how this bizarre situation is going to work out, as the rejected king has unwittingly chosen the one who will be his replacement to come and serenade him. Now, David had the skill of bringing relief to Saul. David never had a recital, a lesson, or an audience, but he never had a more impressive debut. David's priorities were simple, to be who God made him to be, to go to where God is sending him, and to use what God had given him to use. Greatness came upon him. He never sought it. He wasn't waiting for greatness. Greatness, instead, was waiting for him. David was a poet and a musician, skilled at playing the harp and also composing songs. And it's unusual to find such a talent in a man who was also a rugged soldier and a fearless general. The son of Jesse would display musical and verbal skill that would last a millennia. He would be called the sweet psalmist of Israel in 2 Samuel 23.1. Now, through David's praise, deliverance from depression would become a reality. Now, this is not surprising, though, for there is power in praise. Worship can work wonders in our lives. When I'm depressed or I'm blue or I'm feeling like I'm being attacked by the enemy, when I feel that there are demons harassing me, I've found that one of the best things that I can do is worship the Lord. 
Now, Martin Luther believed that the Reformation would not be complete until the saints of God had two things in their possession, a Bible in their own language and a hymnal, which they called a Psalter. He believed they needed the book that could lead them to a deeper understanding of the faith and a hymnal that would help them express their joy and delight of the depths of that faith. That's why we take the time to sing songs and to worship together when we gather here. Let me ask you a question. Do you have to be ultra-emotional to worship God? No. Remember, God looks at the heart. Now, some people do weep and get emotional. But if you sit there with your eyes shut and you are fully devoted to God in worship, God honors that just the same. What I'm saying is there is no formula and no one way is any better than the other. I just want us to realize this morning that the worship music that we sing is more than just a filler or an interlude to the sermon. It's more than just one more box we check off before we go to the cracker barrel. It is to prepare our hearts for the Word of God. Now, if you think I'm overemphasizing that, go home and do a Google search how many times words like song, sing, or sung, or one of its derivatives is found in the Bible. And I would also say that if all you listen to is secular music, I would encourage you to begin to replace that with some Christian music and just see, just give it a test and see if your outlook on life doesn't change. It's the old adage of garbage in, garbage out. Now we come to chapter 17. It's one of the all-time favorite stories ever told. It has the ingredients of drama and excitement anticipation, and the satisfaction of the good God defeating the bad guy against all odds. The story is so skillfully told that it holds our attention and captures our imagination, no matter how familiar it has become to us. Look at verse 1 with me. Now the Philistines gathered their armies together to battle, and were gathered together at Sokah, which belongs to Judah. They encamped between Sokah and Azekah and Ephesdemim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered together. And they encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in battle array against the Philistines. The Philistines stood on a mountain on one side, and Israel stood on a mountain on the other side, with a valley between them. Our text takes us to the crux of an impending conflict between the Philistines and the armies of Israel in the Valley of Elah, which is a vast canyon about one mile wide. On opposite sides of the valley, there was sloped terrain, and situated on those facing slopes were the armies of Israel and the Philistines. It is here that our story is going to unfold. The chapter opens with these ominous words, Now the Philistines gathered their armies together for battle. Now, this is not the first time that we have seen this situation develop in 1 Samuel. The Philistine threat has been in the background of the entire narrative of 1 Samuel, and it will be there until the very end of Saul's life. In fact, Saul is going to die in a conflict with the Philistines when we finally reach 1 Samuel chapter 31. The Philistines first appeared in this book in chapter 4, where we read that at Aphek, the Philistines drew up in line against Israel. Now, please note that phrase in verse 1 that says, which belongs to Judah. 
that reminds us that the Philistines are encroaching upon Judean lands. In other words, the Philistines and Goliath are trespassing. They have come to a place they do not belong. They have come to a place that belongs to God's people alone, a place that in God's eyes they have no right to be. The first thing I would like us to notice is that the word Ephesdemim translated means the border of blood. And that tells me that whatever we face in life, whatever that thing is that we wrestle with that seems unconquerable, the truth is it can't come any closer than the border of blood. The blood that our Lord shed protects us from the evil one. And even when we do go through giant trials, we must remember that all adversity must be sifted through the fingers of God's permissive will. Satan can do nothing without the permission of God. And if that permission is given, it is only to make us stronger and more like Christ. Now, it is interesting that although the Israelite forces gather to meet the renewed aggression of the Philistines, we are not told of any active leadership from Saul. It simply records, And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. Now, the grammar of those sentences contains something of the difference between the two sides. The Philistines gathered, which is in the active voice, while Saul and the men of Israel were gathered, which is in the passive voice. There is no sign of active leadership among the Israelites. Saul is just among those who were gathered. But wait, it says in verse 2 that Saul and the men of Israel were camped in the valley of Elah. But here in verse 3, it says that both the Philistines and Israel stood on a mountain with the valley in between them. This is the kind of thing that Bible critics like to point to, saying that the Bible always contradicts itself. So what's the answer in this case? Actually, it's pretty simple. It says Saul and the army camped in the valley. And so the rest of Israel who were not in the army, such as the elderly and the women and the children, were obviously the ones who were watching from the mountaintop. And allow me to insert here that battles are never won on a mountaintop. Battles are almost always fought in the valley. Personal valleys become the sites of personal conflicts. They are the giants of the soul. Goliath comes in many forms, shapes, and sizes, albeit always very large. Your giant may be an overwhelming set of circumstances, a terminal medical condition, a personality in the workplace, or a situation with your employment. For some, it's the Goliath of habitual sin that meets you in the valley of your weakness and continually intimidates you and robs you of your personal joy, hope, and freedom. But make no mistake about it. We will all walk through valleys in this life. Look at verse 4 with me. And a champion went out from the camp of the Philistines named Goliath from Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. The narrator is going to take an unusual amount of space to give us a close-up view of this man called Goliath. Try to form an impression in your mind of this colossal, powerful, apparently indestructible, formidable figure. The word Goliath means strip. 
which is exactly what our adversary seeks to do as he tries to strip us of our joy and happiness and our purpose and our peace. Now, depending on how you measure a cubit, and there is some controversy, but either way, Goliath would have at least been nine foot five, and he could have been as tall as 11 foot six. Now, I don't know about you. But if you meet a guy in a dark alley, it doesn't make much difference if he's 9, 10, or 11 feet tall unless you know Kung Fu. (laughs) Now, it's at this point when the skeptic speaks up and starts talking about how the Bible is full of fairy tales. Obviously, there is no such thing as giants. Well, you would have had a hard time of that convincing Robert Wadlow. Robert was born in Alton, Illinois on February 22, 1918, and he weighed a normal 8 pounds, 6 ounces. He drew attention to himself when at 6 months old he weighed 30 pounds. A year later, at 18 months, he weighed 62 pounds. He continued to grow at an astounding rate, reaching 6 foot 2 inches and 195 pounds by the time he was 8 years old which had to be a nightmare for his Sunday school teacher. (laughs) I imagine he was never denied his animal crackers and Kool-Aid. When he finally quit growing at his height of 8 feet and 11 inches, it qualified him as the tallest person in history, as recorded in the Guinness Book of World Records. At the time of his death, he weighed 490 pounds, and it took 12 men to carry his coffin. So with that in mind, I don't know how people find this story so unbelievable. But actually, it's even worse than that. On top of his size, Goliath is armed to the teeth. Verse 5, please. He had a bronze helmet on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail. And the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs and a bronze javelin between his shoulders. Now the staff of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his iron spearhead weighed 600 shekels, and a shield-bearer went before him. His upper body was covered with a coat of mail, it says. Now this armor weighed 5,000 shekels, which is about 125 pounds. Now, it would be hard enough to just lift 125 pounds. Imagine wearing that like a coat. Clearly, he would not be susceptible to any weapon that was aimed at his chest. His legs were also protected by bronze armor, which would be our equivalent of shin guards. And if you're 10 feet tall, you want a good set of shin guards. I mean, where else is your enemy going to be able to hit you when you're that big? All they can do is give you a good kick in the shin. In other words, the man's defenses gave all the appearance of being impenetrable. He stood there like a one-man, indestructible fortress. The head of Goliath's spear weighed about 17 pounds. Now, that's an amazing weight for a spear, considering a shot put weighs only 16 pounds. The historian Josephus stated that his javelin was so large that he carried it strapped over his shoulder like a tree. Goliath was like a walking Abram's tank, covered in hundreds of pounds of highly polished brass armor. This guy was a ten-foot-tall Mike Tyson without the high-pitched girly voice. 
Now, scholars believe he himself weighed about 550 pounds. Now, Goliath was a big man, but don't make the mistake that he was a clumsy man. Actually, he was a skilled fighter who had a reputation of never losing. His head, his shoulders, his chest were all clothed in brass. He would have been just one dazzling mass of brass sparkling in the Palestinian sun. This Goliath, as he strutted up and down one side of the valley, must have been very fascinating to look at and also very terrifying. So if you can imagine Goliath as he comes out into that valley wearing all that shiny bronze and the Palestinian sun begins to reflect off of him, he must have looked like a 10-foot walking wall of fire. From the top of his head to the bottom of his feet, he was impregnable. There are some scholars that feel like Goliath is the kind of man that Jesus spoke about when he spoke of Satan in Luke 11.21. It reads, When a strong man fully armed guards his own house, his possessions are undisturbed. But when someone stronger than he attacks him and overpowers him, he takes away from him all his armor on which he had relied and distributes his plunder. That's telling us that there is this man that we will eventually have to face in life, and he controls everybody under him, and he is unassailable in our own strength. And it takes Christ as the stronger man to disarm him and then to redistribute that man's plunder. We were that plunder, by the way. We have been taken from the kingdom of darkness and redistributed throughout this earth to now serve in the kingdom of light. That's another sermon, though. Verse 8, Then he stood and cried out to the armies of Israel and said to them, Why have you come out to line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and you the servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. Now add to what you can imagine seeing by hearing him. Across the valley of Elah, the voice of the Philistine thundered towards the Israelite lines. Literally said, am I not the Philistine? The pronoun I is greatly emphasized. It would be as if he was saying, am I the one you see before you? This menacing metal-clad hulk, this powerful and violent figure, am I not the embodiment of the Philistine? He then comes up with a plan. Here's an idea that will save us all a whole lot of trouble. Choose, for your man, choose a man for yourselves, let him come down to me. Choose a man for yourself. Now, where have we heard those words before? At the very beginning of this book, when the people started demanding for a king. Samuel spoke to the people of this. He said, you're a king whom you have chosen for yourself. 1 Samuel 8.18. You see, the Israelites had already chosen a man for themselves, and his name was King Saul. It is important to remember that the one reason, perhaps it was the reason really, that the people asked for a king in the first place was that their king might go out before us and fight our battles, 1 Samuel 8.20. So it would seem that the logical choice would be King Saul, as he was a head taller than everybody else, But it's obvious that Saul doesn't want any part of Goliath. Send a man down to me, Goliath roared. 
I like that phrase, though, because there eventually would be a man, the Son of Man, who would come down from heaven to do battle with the enemy that seeks to devour us. And by the way, the story will eventually prove that Goliath is a liar. The Philistines will not submit to the Israelites even when their champion is slain. But at this point, the possibility of that happening was so remote that no one would have even given it any consideration. Verse 10, And the Philistines said, I defy the armies of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now Goliath starts trash-talking in verse 10. He says, Fee, fi, fo, fum. I smell... No. <laughs> he really didn't say that. That's, uh, that's Jack and the Beanstalk. That's not in the Bible if you're trying to Google it. <clears throat> Goliath shouts in arrogance, I defy the armies of Israel. Actually, the word defy is too weak. It would be better translated, I scorn the ranks of Israel, or I mock the ranks of Israel. We're told in verse 11 that they were dismayed. That word dismayed hardly captures what the word means in the original language. The word in Hebrew means to be broken mentally. It means to be in a trial to where you're pushed to the edge and you're concerned for your very sanity. It means to be completely and utterly disabled in the face of what you are facing. It's the kind of trial that rises up in all of its strength and with all of its mocking. It scorns our strength and it mocks our faith. It's the kind of trial that refuses to be ignored. A, I'm at the end of my rope kind of trial. A, it fills the entire radar screen until that's all I can see kind of trial. A, dominate all your senses kind of trial. A, I can't get away from it morning or evening until I'm paralyzed with fear kind of trial. So you find yourself in a valley, and those are bad enough in life. But now on top of that, you have to deal with a giant. Now, the threats from their enemies were the most obvious manifestation, I think, of Israel's insecurity. But it's clear, however, I think, from Israel's history, that the more sinister threats to Israel did not come in the form of armies or giants. Even more dangerous was the multifaceted, constantly present temptation to forget or forsake the Lord and to follow other gods. I think the same is true in our lives also. Verse 12, and then we'll all picnic in Jesus' name. Now David was the son of the Ephrathite of Bethlehem, Judah, whose name was Jesse, and had eight sons, and the man was old, advanced in years in the days of Saul. The three oldest sons of Jesse had gone to follow Saul to the battle. The names of his three sons who went to battle were Eliab, the firstborn, next to him Abinadab, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest, and the three oldest followed Saul. But David occasionally went and returned from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. And the Philistines drew near and presented himself forty days, morning and evening. That tells us that David didn't remain in Saul's camp permanently, but he went back and forth between the camp 
and his home to feed his father's sheep. And it wasn't until after David finally kills Goliath that Saul takes him permanently in to be one of his armor bearers. And we may very well wonder why this standoff continues for so long here in chapter 17. With both sides feigning a fight, with a bunch of loud shouting and all the hype of war, but with no real contact or any kind of casualties. It is my opinion that Saul and his army does not really want to fight, and neither do the Philistines. But in some ways, it's easier to understand the Philistines' reluctance. You see, they employ steel as well as bronze in their implements of war. And they have chariots, for example, but these are designed for relatively level ground, not mountain slopes. So each other is hoping that the other will be the first to charge up the other hill and thus be at a disadvantage. And so Goliath taunts the Israeli army. They cannot even look at each other in the eye because they realize they are being shamed and openly shamed. And he doesn't taunt them just five or six times, but twice a day for 40 days. Now, the number 40 in the Bible is the number for testing and trials. Forty years the children of Israel wandered in the wilderness. Forty days it rained in the days of Noah. Forty days Jesus was tested by Satan in the desert. So if you can imagine, they would begin their days with Goliath taunting them, and as they hung their heads all day, he would taunt them just one more time in the evening, just in case they forgot their place. Now, in closing, Goliath has crossed the ravine of the valley, and that warns me this morning that if we tolerate a giant long enough, the giant will begin to try and take over our land. While they boast of their strength, they slowly move in closer, and pretty soon they dominate all your thoughts, steal your joy, and rob away all your peace. Each day for a month and a half, Goliath comes and delivers his challenge. And each day the Israelites become more and more afraid. This is what the Bible calls a trial. The kind of trial in life that tries to trespass what belongs to God alone. Things like our heart, our minds, our soul, and our strength. So what do we do when we are faced with that kind of trial. If you'd like to talk about any of this, I will be available at the picnic now that I'm too old to play any of the sports and I'm too disoriented to play competitive chess anymore. You can find me uh, lingering around Melissa Brooks' chocolate lasagna. Now, you don't want any of that. It doesn't taste very good. It actually made me a little sick last time I ate it. So uh, as your pastor, I'm just trying to protect you. Father, we do thank you that uh, we've all faced giants. There are all, I believe, giants upon the horizon that we don't even know about yet. But we know, Lord, that your Holy Spirit is the giant slayer. Now let's pray, Father God, that all of us in here are in a different place in our relationship with you. And you know what each of us need to make us the person that you would have us to be. I pray just do that, O oh God. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.